we turn our attention to Matthew again. Now, (laughs) I'm going to kind of tell on myself a little bit here. And for you folks who are uh, children in your home right now, do as I say, not as I do, okay? I'm going to tell you that ahead of time. There were many times, and I'm sad to say that, many times in my life growing up that things were conditional. I could go do something if I would blank. And a lot of times that blank was clean my room. And my mom would say, your room's a wreck, which my room was about as big as our bathroom back here. It was pretty small, and I'm not bitter or anything. Um, Oh, yeah. Anyway... John and Asa have that room now, so they're like, yeah, tell me about it. Um, But anyway, uh, you can go out and play with your friends if you will clean your room. After you clean your room, my room ain't that bad, and I'd march upstairs, and I'm like, oh, shoot. (laughs) It is pretty bad. And I would come to this brilliant conclusion time and time again, I'll just push everything under the bed, right? It'll look great. And you know what? It did. It did look great. Until mom came up. She said, let me check it out. She's like, that was really quick. I'm efficient, mom. You've trained me well. She's like, is everything under the bed? What? What? Well, eventually I got to the point where I didn't have it under the bed. I had a, uh, a bunk bed and there was no place to put stuff under the bed. So then what? Well, that bunk bed had a built-in closet, so everything went in the closet, Right? Time after time after time after time, I gave the appearance of cleaning my room, but my mom was not stupid, nor is she today. And she knew what I would do, and she would check under the bed, she would check the closet, and then she would tell me, now clean your room. It was hard being me, right? So hard. I wanted to give the appearance that I had done what I was supposed to do so that I could get what I wanted. So that I could do what I wanted to do. Live life on my terms. And here's the deal, kiddos. I don't want to be mean, but you really don't know what's best for you. And your brilliant ideas of hiding, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it is, you're not going to get by with it. And you're developing some really bad habits. I developed many in my day that I'm still trying to overcome some of them, truthfully. Today, we are going to see... In the Gospel of Matthew, an example of some people that Jesus tells a story about that really, really illustrates this and really um, lays the hammer down to some of the religious elite and as I've gone through the week really lays the hammer down on me too because I've been pushing stuff underneath my bed for a long time now. So we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 21 verses 23 to 32. And if you would please stand to show that we understand these are the very words of God. And that's an awesome thing. So I think we've lost reverence as a culture. And I think this is one way that we can show that we do revere and stand in awe, like we sing about, of what we're about to hear because they are God's words. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? 
Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Father, your word is perfect, restoring our souls, convicting us of our sins, showing us our need for righteousness, and showing our lack of ever achieving that righteousness ourselves. But because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, we can be given the gift of righteousness and walk uprightly in our lives. Help us to do that. Correct us, teach us, instruct us, give new life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. Verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So we left Jesus last week, I think, and I don't know if I've gotten this right every week. I need to go back and look and listen of what day was what. First day of the week for them was Sunday. You got the evening, start of the day. You got all kinds, and I've said that 20 times. I've really struggled with this what day of the week of Holy Week did this stuff happen. I think... And I don't know if I said this last week or if I was wrong. I think we are on Tuesday of Holy Week in today's passage. No. Yes. Yes. So we had left him last week on Tuesday of Holy Week walking away from the fig tree that he had cursed the day before. Okay? With his disciples looking at this dead tree going, whoa, how did this happen? And so they, they weren't really in awe of a dead plant. They were in awe of Jesus' power. And like Jesus had done each of the other days of this Holy Week, including the triumphal entry on the first day of the week, as he's done every day so far, he heads to the temple. The day before this passage, he had run the sellers of goods and the money changers out of that temple, and now he's coming back on that following day. And the fact that he keeps coming back to the temple shows again what his focus is as he makes his way through this last week of his life. He keeps going back to the temple, doing various things, cleansing it, teaching, healing. And the temple would be teeming with religious Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world, literally, in town for the annual Passover celebration. And like we've said before, Jesus was not focusing on political power grabs. And he wasn't being seclusive, which I think I might have feared toward if I was him, trying to rest in order to save his energy for this hardest of all weeks of his life. Instead, he's not doing those things. He wants to reach people with the message of his kingdom. So he goes where the religious people are. 
to tell them about his kingdom. He's sharing this kingdom message, having ridden to town to the cries of Hosanna to the son of David. And the king, Jesus, is in full command of his court here in the temple. And who do you think shows up to sniff around and see what's going on? So just think, now remember, the day before he had cleansed the temple. He had run people out of the temple. So the chief priests... And the elders of the people show up. Now that's a little bit different phrasing. Usually when we hear chief priests, it's the chief priests and scribes. Right? So we're not really used to seeing this chief priests and elders. So who are the elders? Well, definition-wise, my non-Greek scholarliness, Rodney, says the Greek word is presbyteros. Okay, you ever heard that word before? Presbyterian, the presbytery. And it translates as elder 64 times, old man once, eldest once, and elder woman once. And it it is a term of rank or office. And, And among the Jews, members of the great council or the Sanhedrin, which you've probably heard of, um were made up of these elders, the 24 members of the heavenly Sanhedrin, the 24 elders in Revelation, uh, is how it's used in Revelation. So what you're seeing are leaders among the people, older men who are leaders among the people. Uh, They had been appointed since the time of Moses to be leaders of the people, those who would be considered wise, to be sought out for guidance and to render judgments among the people. And if you look back as early as Exodus... Uh, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see the Hebrews, again, at God's direction, appointing elders to help lead and rule over the people as a regular practice, which carried through into New Testament times. And today, we still have elders, right? <clears throat> Hopefully. <clears throat> um, because that's, that's what the Bible tells us to do. Um, and now, in this time period, here in what we're looking at in, in Matthew, these elders of the people wielded a lot of power and influence. Uh, David Stern, who's the author of the Jewish New Testament commentary, says this, quote, The Hebrew word smikah, and the rendering of the Greek is exousia, means leaning or laying, which is referring to the leaning or laying on of hands in the ordination ceremony for a judge, elder, or rabbi. Laying on of hands is, in the Tanakh, which is a Jewish religious book, a symbolic act that confers or transfers an office along with its duties and privileges by dramatizing God's bestowal of the blessings and giftings needed for the work. So Stern goes on, and that's the end of the direct quote, but he goes on to explain that any elder would have been part of a laying on of hands ceremony that would be proof of their ordination that would verify their authority to perform the duties of an elder, to lead, to guide, to judge, to decide. So these elders who had been part of that kind of ceremony to have that authority invested into them show up. Here, these elders in Jerusalem would be major representatives in the Sanhedrin, which was pretty much their supreme court, uh, making decisions based on Jewish life and law. So, the chief priests who've been hanging out mostly with the scribes, the lawyers who decoded the law, they haven't had much luck cornering Jesus with the scribes. Jesus would just mystify them with the word. So they kind of go up to the next echelon of power. 
the next echelon of authority. And they're like, we'll go get the elders because this guy is in the temple. He's throwing people out. Calm down. Jesus is throwing people out of the temple. Jesus is turning money, money tables over. He's running people out. He's telling them, you can't walk through this part of the temple. And so the chief priests go to the elders and say, hey, we've got to do something. We've got to figure out what's going on here. Because this is our temple, right? That's their mindset. And they want to stamp down this rogue rabbi from Nazareth who had literally came in and turned things upside down in their temple. And the chief priests and the elders come up to Jesus while he's teaching in that same temple the day after he'd run everybody out, and they ask him this. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The elders had in their minds, in their minds, they had the authority that had been bestowed upon them at their installation. And and in their minds, again, they had the right to ask where Jesus got the authority to do what he was doing, especially running people out of the temple. Um, And I didn't write down who said this. This was a quote in... I'll have to get you the... the, I I don't want to not attribute properly who said this. It was in a commentary. I'll find it. I don't have it written down here. But, but the quote says this. In Deuteronomy, the Jewish people were told to take disputes to their rulers for them to settle. The elders of the people challenged Jesus and asked by what authority he was acting. That's the end of the quote. And again, I'll get you who said that later. In order to do what Jesus had done in the mind of the elders, he would have needed to go through them. Right? This was their temple, like we said. In their mind, what was right was, all authority comes through us. We've been given that authority. We're the elders. Right? And the answer is no, not right, as evidenced by Jesus. We know on this side of the cross, 2,000 years later, where Jesus got his authority, don't we? He got it from his Father, who is the source of all authority. And this is not the first time that this subject has come up with the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes and stuff. Let me go back to John chapter 10 and read this exchange. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him because Jesus was saying some pretty crazy things in their mind, talking about who he was and what he was doing, where he came from. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man... Make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, which is Jesus, referring to himself, are you saying to him, You're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then they picked up stones again, but they couldn't pin Jesus down and Jesus left. So here in John, Jesus had made it clear that he was showing his divine authority sent from God himself. And he was showing that divine authority by the works that he had been doing. The miracles that he was performing. Now, go back to today's text in Matthew, and the leaders of the Jews are asking the question that had been answered by Jesus' works and Jesus' words already. They want answers. They want proof. They want Jesus to show himself. 
And this is what I think. And I'm not sure, but I'm, I, I feel pretty good about it. I think they wanted him to say something similar like what he said in John 10 here at the Passover. I think they wanted him to step up and say, I am God. That's where I get my authority. Why would they want him to do that? Well, the Jews wouldn't take that very well. Okay, Here in, in, in John 10, it was the Jews, not the leaders of the Jews, who picked up stones to stone Jesus. It was the Jews themselves. So I think that they were trying to trap him. Where do you get this authority? And that they had nudged each other before and said, he says he gets authority from God because he says he's the son of God, which makes him equal with God. So if we can get him to say that in the temple, the people will turn on him. The people will kill him. That's what I think is going on here. And the Jews weren't looking for God to show up. The Jews were looking for this Messiah, this conquering king, who would reset the kingdom of the Jews in Jerusalem, in Israel, and and make their country great again. (laughs) Got to be careful there, right? Um, They were looking to Jesus to be their conquering Messiah king. And if he started talking God in the flesh nonsense, then the crowds would turn on him. And these elders knew that they hadn't ordained Jesus. They knew that they weren't the source of his authority, and the people looked to these ruling elders to make these types of decisions. So they're trying to get Jesus to mess up here. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to throw off his popularity and expose him as a fraud by his own words. They're trying to trap him just like they've been doing for three, three and a half years now. And how does Jesus respond? Newsflash, Jesus is smarter than they are. So he doesn't play their game and he doesn't pacify them. Watch verse 24. Jesus answered them. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus answered them, it says. And I say, well, did he really? (laughs) He kind of did. He answers their question with a question, which is really a pretty common practice of Jesus. And of, of a good therapist, by the way, too. But... I also will ask you one question, Jesus says. But that's not all he says. I'll ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay? Jesus says he'll answer their question about the source of his authority if they will answer one question from him. His answering them is dependent on their answering him. So, okay, what's the question? Verses 25 and 26. The baptism of John... From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So Jesus' question revolves not around him, but rather around John the Baptist. No, no, where did that come from? He asked these chief priests and elders, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Well, I think that's pretty interesting. What's going on here? Again, we know that Jesus is smarter than you and me and them. And the chief priests and the elders and everybody else. So what is the method to this seeming madness? Well, remember, remember what John had come to do. And what his message was. He had been asked, John had been, in his overwhelming popularity. So people were coming from all over to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And he had been asked directly if he was, if he was the Messiah. And he had answered in John 1 that he was indeed not the Messiah, but that he was preparing the way before the Messiah. And he proclaimed Jesus as that Messiah when he said in John 1, 29 through 34, which I don't have up here, but I'll read 
The next day when he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, which was God, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's what God said to John. And then John says this, And I have seen and have borne witness that this man, this man Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. So that's John's message about who Jesus was. John said, I'm not the Messiah, but I know the Messiah. It's the one who the the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on him. And I've seen him and I've borne witness that he is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So mark that. John had clearly said that God himself had pointed out to him that Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, period. And it was well documented. So if John was this clear about who Jesus was, Jesus challenging the chief priests and elders about John makes perfect sense. Because if John was sent from God and said what God had shown him, then their opinion about John had to be their opinion about Jesus as well. If John had been sent by God, then Jesus was too. And so how do they respond? Again, Jesus is smart, y'all. He's really smart. So how do they respond? Well, they call a timeout. Timeout. We need to... They break out the whiteboard and they're drawing up a play. Okay, so who's going to get the ball? I don't want it. You take it. Oh, uh, no. Give it, give, it to, give it to Bartimaeus over here. He's, you know. So they're like, okay, so what's going on here? We've got to figure this out. Okay? So they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven... John's baptism came from heaven, then he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Because they didn't believe John, by the way. But if we say that his baptism came from man, which is what they believed, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So here in their huddle, they lay out the options before them. They clearly were not expecting this question. In their discussion amongst themselves, they reason that if they say that John's commission came from heaven then Jesus will ask why they didn't believe, why, why the chief priests and elders didn't believe John. And they hadn't. John had called them a brood of vipers, and we go all the way back to Matthew 3. They came out to see what was going on, and John looked at them and said, Who, who told y'all to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? But they also reasoned that if they say that John was a kook who was operating on man-made wisdom, then the crowd, who were big John fans, they loved John, That crowd might turn on them because the crowd held that John was a prophet. In other words, that John was sent from God carrying God's message. And R.C. Sproul pointed out in his message on this passage that it was common knowledge that in this time that Jesus is speaking to the chief priests and elders that John was at the top of public opinion polls at the time. John was even more popular than Jesus at this time, even having been killed. Everybody, the crowds, everybody held John in high regard, the highest of regards. They had their questions about Jesus, but they knew who John was and they loved him. And he was number one with a rocket. So that put these, uh, a bad word against John then from the chief priests and elders would make them look bad to the crowds. And we know that they went to great lengths to curry favor and respect from the crowds, right? That was the hallmark of their hypocritical posturing, their false external righteousness, seeking the applause and praise of men. So they find themselves in a very frustrating pickle. So they break the huddle, 
team. Okay? And they answered Jesus in verse 27. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Ha! <laughs> they kind of, I know there's a lot of anti-football people out there, but, but when they have a, like a, a, an instant replay review thing, they all get in a huddle there and they got the headset on, they're watching them. And they come out and they make a decision. That's kind of what's going on here. They, they came in, they, they made it, they had an instant replay review. <clears throat> and after further review, the play stands as called. We don't know. We don't know. They can't come to a conclusion that helps them. So, Matthew says they answered Jesus, we do not know. Bomb diffused. Jesus got them trapped. Their trap is exposed and it's thrown away. We do not know. And they don't know how true that statement is, by the way. But Jesus conditioned to answering their question about where he got the authority to do what he was doing. His condition was that they would answer his question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? We don't know. Well, Jesus says that ain't going to cut it. And then Jesus says to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You don't answer my question, I don't answer yours. That's the way this game's played. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's going to answer their question. But not directly in the way that they would want. And he is going to skewer them with a parable, which we see in verses 28 through 30. So Jesus goes on. You don't answer my question, I don't answer your question. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. He got his butt busted. No, it doesn't say that, but it's what he needed. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Now, not too hard to decipher this story, right? Simple question. A dad approaches his two sons individually, telling them to go work in the vineyard for the day. One says, I won't go. But after dad leaves, he's like, I probably should. So he goes out and works in the vineyard. The second one said, okay, I'll go. But then he doesn't go. It's pretty straightforward, right? It's not complicated. Easy to understand. So Jesus asks the elders and chief priests a very simple question after telling this story in the first part of verse 31. After telling the parable, Jesus said, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And we'll stop right there in verse 31. So Jesus asked, which of the two sons did the will of his father? And I think we can all answer that question pretty easily, right? Well, the chief priests and elders think it's pretty easy too. And they answer clearly and simply, the first. Aha! We answered your question. Aha! You ain't tricking us. The first son who said he wouldn't go into the vineyard, but then later changed his mind and went anyway, he was the one who did the will of his father. And they were right. They gave Jesus the right answer. So they finally get, there you go. Way to go, right? Well, knowing the answer to the question about the parable and knowing what the parable is really about are two different things, which these chief priests and elders are about to find out in the second part of verse 31. Watch this, 31b. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. (laughs) So Jesus receives their right answer to his question, which he was expecting. And then he makes what must have been a very shocking statement to them after their right answer. He definitely does not congratulate them on their astute observation. 
No, he begins with his familiar opening of truly I say to you, which is a statement of the importance of the truth that he's about to unleash on them. Again, it's amen I say to you, so be it I say to you. And I'm sure again that Jesus' disciples perked up a bit, knowing the other times that Jesus had used this phrase. But the chief priests and scribes couldn't have been prepared for what followed that truly I say to you. Truly, Jesus says, to the religious elite of the day, to the chief priests and the elders of the people who made up the Supreme Court deciding and decoding the law of God. Truly, Jesus says to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And I'm sure their robes blew a little bit as that holy wind blew past them. What? Which son did the father's will? The one who said no, but went afterwards. Truly, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. That escalated quickly and seemingly oddly. Where'd that come from? They came asking about Jesus' authority. Jesus refuses to answer, but asks them about John the Baptist. Jesus tells a story about two sons, asks an easy question about the story. The chief priests and the elders get the answer right. And then Jesus says, thieves and whores will get into heaven before you. And they're like, what? I think it's pretty clear what that means. But why does it mean that in reference to this story? Well, Jesus is about to explain it in our last verse for today. Verse 32. Four. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Okay, so Jesus ties it all together for them and for us. And he places everyone in their proper place in the story. This is one of those times when Jesus directly interprets the parable for us. We don't have to wonder what it means, he tells us. So let's line that up. Jesus says, John came in the way of righteousness. As far as the story goes, John was speaking the words of the Father, telling people what the Father wanted. So in essence, the Father was speaking through John. There's the Father in the parable. So the Father is God speaking through John. And then Jesus compares the chief priests and elders with the Son who said He would go into the vineyard, but then He didn't. See, they talked a good game. They presented an image of obedient sons. They pushed their stuff underneath the bed. But they didn't really do what God had required of them. And then Jesus compares the son who said he wouldn't go, but then he did go to whom? He's compared them to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now what's that mean? Their lives as tax collectors, as prostitutes, were showing that they didn't believe the Word of God, living loose and selfishly. But after John came, they repented. They changed their minds, and they changed their lives, and they changed their deeds, and they ended up in the vineyard, so to speak. And then Jesus says that even when the religious elite saw the despised actually repenting and changing, they refused to change their minds and believe John's words, which were God's words. So that makes more sense as to why the religious elites would not see or make it into the kingdom of God, but the so-called, quote, sinners would. These religious elite may have looked good to outsiders initially, but when God started showing what true change looks like, they wouldn't see it and they wouldn't believe it. That's the afterward not changing their minds and believing God through John. So, since they would not repent of their self-righteousness... 
while the tax collectors and the prostitutes did repent of their unrighteousness at John's preaching, thus those seen as sinners would get into God's kingdom before the self-righteous religious elite ever would. Pretty simple math, but can you imagine how this chapped the chief priests and the elders? Jesus basically told them, you are going to hell while the hated tax collectors and prostitutes, the worst of the sinners, would dance into heaven. What an affront. What an insult. And what a truth. But Jesus isn't done with them. He's done, we're done for today. He's going to spend the bulk of the time from here all the way through chapter 23. Dealing with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the religious elite of the day. So until we get done with chapter 23, he's still kind of beating on them. And us. (laughs) Because I think we've all pushed some stuff underneath the bed, haven't we? So we'll turn to application. Three R's. It is a pirate's application for me. R. Three R's. Rule, repent, and real. Rule, repent, and real. R-E-A-L. Rule, repent, and real. First is rule. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to be honest with you. I went, it's just like the fig tree passage. I went into it with one mindset of what I thought the passage was about, and it turned out to be something different. This is the same thing. I thought this passage was about authority. And that's in there, and that's what we're going to talk about when we talk about rule. But it's not the main point of the passage. But it is in there. So there's application for authority, which we're calling rule. The chief priests and the elders came challenging and questioning Jesus' authority today. So my question for us is, do we even understand the concept of authority? And the totality of the authority of Jesus? I've mentioned Watchman Nee before. And he's got a book called Spiritual Authority, which I know I've recommended before, but I'm going to recommend it again today. It was formative in my understanding of the concept of authority in the Bible. And he says this in that book. The acts of God issue from His throne, and His throne is established on His authority. All things are created through God's authority, and all physical laws of the universe are maintained by His authority. For God's authority represents God Himself. God alone is authority in all things. All the authorities of the earth are instituted by God. Authority is a tremendous thing in the universe. Nothing overshadows it. And he finishes the quote by saying, It is therefore imperative, imperative for us who desire to serve God to know the authority of God. I don't know if I should... Challenge you to do this, but turn on the TV. Get on the internet. Read some stuff. Our world is on fire. Literally. And it's burning in revolt against authority. So what's the call for us? What's the application for us? We must be those as Christians who exemplify the idea and the ideal of submission to authority. In our homes, 
in the church, and in the world. Now let me preface what I'm going to finish with, with authority, with this question. Are those in authority always right? No. And when they sin, we call it sin. It is not lawful for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. Well, I'm going to put you in jail then. Okay. I'm going to cut your head off. Okay. That's the Christian response to authority. When they're wrong, we call them wrong. And we submit to them. Not to the point of sin. We do not submit to their laws, to their governing, to the point that we set aside the the law of God and say, well, I'll, I'll follow man instead of God. It's just the opposite of Scripture. We will follow God at all costs, even if it means not following man. But we are not those who are to be the ones railing against the concept and the structures of authority in our lives. Their sin, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, we call it sin. But we do not shake our fist in the face of authority. Watchman Nee wrote what he wrote and said what he said in the midst of communist China. He laid the groundwork for the Chinese church to go underground. And he called for the people listening to him to listen to the Bible that says submit to authority. And he ended up in jail and he died in jail in communist China in 1973. Well, how foolish. He should have fought for his rights. He should have stood up for himself. He should have defied that authority. No. I don't know what your opinion is of John MacArthur... But I don't know if you saw the quote this week. They're threatening to put him in jail if they continue to meet as a church. And his answer was, I've never had a jail ministry before. I'm excited to think about what could happen if they put me in jail. He is is disobeying the civil authorities because they're calling them to do something that's against what the Bible says. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Okay, you can meet, but you can't sing. Scripture tells us to sing to our God. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, especially young folk. Young folk. That sounds old, doesn't it? I'm an old man. Please, please, please listen to the words of the Scripture. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." which is another concept that we've lost in our culture. Conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. 
For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. That's funny. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You're like, but what happens when cops shoot people unjustly? You entrust it to the justice of God. And you submit to the authorities that are in your life. Why? For God's sake, to honor God, and for the sake of your conscience. And this is super complicated. I'm not naive enough to say, if y'all would just listen to the authorities, your life would be better. I'm not that crazy. I know better. But what is going on in your heart towards authority? That's my ultimate question. Because ultimately, if you are defying authority, if you are shaking your fist at authority, you are shaking your fist at God. And he will have no rival for his authority. Period. Do you think you know better than God? Do you think that we've evolved as a culture to the point that we shouldn't believe God anymore? And that God's word is antiquated and God doesn't know what's going on in 21st century America? What's wrong with you people? Me too. Peculiar, I think, that when Jesus ends the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus came and said to them, All grace and forgiveness in heaven and earth have been given to me. What's he say? All authority. And the word is exousia. There's been a transference of the authority of God to the man, Jesus Christ, who was God-man, God in the flesh. And he lets them know that since he has accomplished what he was sent to accomplish, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Don't you think it's weird? I think I would have chosen a different word if I was Jesus. So the application, when we're talking about rule, check your heart about the concept of authority. About the truth of authority. And we as Christians are to be those who are subject to the governing authorities, to those in our home who have authority, husbands, parents, wives, children, those in the church who have authority, those in the world who have been given authority over us. And if you spend your life shaking your fist at authority and telling them why they're wrong only, you're fighting God. And God's undefeated. So that's rule. Second is repent. Change your mind. You're like, well, I don't like authority. Well, repent. True change starts when we repent. Literally, to change our minds about what God says and calls us to. And it's not just about authority, it's about everything. The word repent in the New Testament Greek is metanoia. That's an easy one. I can read that one. And it literally means to change your mind. Kind of like you would change your oil. Out with the old, in with the new. Out with the dirty, in with the clean. Out with the bad, in with the good. Change the way you think. Romans 12, right? 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change the way you think about things. Very calls to salvation in the early church. The very commission of Jesus to the disciples. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance is foundational to your salvation. When God breathes new life into you and you are given the gift of faith to believe, you start to repent. And the Christian life is a life of repentance. Constantly having your mind and your thoughts challenged by the Word of God and changing the way you think about things. If what I'm thinking doesn't line up with what God says, I have to change the way I think. The chief priests and the elders were not willing to repent. And Jesus said, the tax collectors and the whores will dance into heaven while you're going to hell. Because you will not change the way you think. Peter's message at Pentecost. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If there has never been repentance in your life, you are not a Christian. You're like, well, you're scaring me. I'm not trying to scare you. If you haven't changed the way you're thinking about what's going on out there, if you haven't changed the way you're thinking about what's going on in here, you're not a Christian. We have to change the way we think. We have to change our minds. Like the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. We have to repent and we have to constantly be repenting. Because God's going to consistently challenge our thinking in our lives and say, Hey, you need to rethink this. You need to rethink this. Look at my word. Look at my word. The Christian life is one of repentance. Rule, repent, and finally real. I really struggled with that R. I couldn't come up with it. What that's talking about is deeds. You can say you've repented all that you want to. But what's going to be the true sign that you've changed? What you do. The chief priests and the elders said that they were righteous. But their deeds, their thoughts... Their emotions showed otherwise. And the only way that we could see that was by what they did. They had an external righteousness based on what they thought would save them. But their deeds preceded any faith. They did what they did in order to show a faith that they said they had, which was not biblical faith. we got to flip that cart and that horse and make sure that once we have been given the gift of faith then we are doing the deeds that God has called us to do. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we've used it a hundred times in application. We're going to use it again, by the way. You're saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. And usually the application is that God saved you and you didn't save yourself. That's still true, but let's read this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And we say, Amen. For... We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you have been saved by grace through faith, you're going to do good works. Period. Because you were saved and you were put on a path that was preordained to include good works. So does that mean that you've got to do good works to make sure you're saved? No. One of the ways that you can tell that you're saved is that you're doing good works. And if you're not doing good works, you're probably not saved. Well, what are good works? That's a good question. Jesus said, he showed up to two sons, right? And told one to go to the vineyard. And he said, nah. But then he went. Showed up to the other one. And he said, go to the vineyard. Okay. But he never did. It is when we do what God has told us to do that we're doing good works. The ESV Study Bible says this, The parable of the two sons demonstrates the religious leader's failure to respond rightly to John the Baptist's prophetic ministry. They hypocritically did not live up to their talk. And here's what I want you to hear out of this quote more than anything. The fruit of one's life ultimately proves whether or not one is obedient to God's message. A person's actions ultimately prove whether or not he is obedient to God. Are you living your life in obedience to the commands of Christ? To what the scripture says. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not perfectly, but do you? Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? Again, not perfectly, but do you? We talked last week about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is your life marked by that type of fruit? Because the proof is in the putting. The proof is in what you're doing. And the chief priests and the elders proved that they were not children of God by what they did. The prostitutes and the tax collectors proved that they had become sons and daughters of God by what they did. We can say we're different. We can say we're going to try harder to do better. We can say, oh, I am a changed person. But if your actions are not different, you're not a changed person. You're the same old you. Doing the same old do. Things you used to do. I'm still the same old me, loving the same old you. That's what got stuck in my head. That was George Jones' song. You can say all you want that you're changed, but your actions are going to show whether you're changed or not. Don't tell me about how you've changed. Show me how you've changed. Not with a false hypocritical mask. Okay, I'll put on a play acting class. But from a heart that has been broken and repaired by God Himself. From a mind that has repented of what it used to do. And now says that's wrong and this is right. I'm therefore going to do by the power of the Spirit what I couldn't do before. And what God has called me to do. We'll finish with this. And again, we've used it a hundred times. But I don't write the Bible. It comes up as it comes up. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works, James says. You believe that God's one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're like, oh, but the banners. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A mental ascent, even an emotional, ooh, I feel better, is not proof of your salvation. What you do day in, day out, how you think, what you feel day in, day out, is the proof of whether or not God has saved you and whether or not He is doing in and through you what you can't do yourself. Now listen, time out, okay? Time out. These application points can make it feel like, well, we're just bad and wrong and we don't have a concept of authority and we've never really changed our minds and we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. I hope that's not our story. I hope that we're not the chief priests and the elders who had a wrong concept of authority because they thought authority started with them. And they refused to repent and their deed showed that they had never repented. I'm not here to scare you to try to get you to make a decision to do something different today than you've ever done before. This is not about fear. This is about hope. Jesus is saying today, I know those who are mine. Those who are mine have a right concept of authority. Imperfect, yes, but right. And they submit themselves to authorities because it's what I've told them to do. And when they don't want to do it, they've got to repent and change their minds and say, I need to know how to do this in our current mayhem because some of the authorities I don't feel like they're worth submitting to. So I've got to repent. God, how can I? Submit to these authorities. What, should, what does it look like? What should I do? How should I think? How should I feel? And finally, so what should I be doing? That's the question we got to ask ourselves as Christians. And that's what Jesus brings our attention to here today. I'm not here to beat you up and tell you you ain't even saved, you loser. It's not the point of this message. But Jesus clearly condemned the chief priests and the elders because of their faulty concept of authority, because they would not repent, and their deeds were evil. And if you fit that description today, you have got to be born again. If you are born again, there's a call to hope that this can be our everyday experience. This can be what characterizes us. That the world sees us and says those people are subject to the governing authorities, They're always thinking, they're always changing the way that they think to line up with the Scripture, and I see their good works. That's the point of today's message. And I hope that you're encouraged by it. Let's pray. Father, we need help. I had a man in therapy the other day said he felt like a goldfish because the tank, the water that he's swimming in is just sin. And God, if we look out there, I feel it. Everywhere I go, there's sin. And I'm afraid 
when I look inside, I see the same thing. What I think, what I feel, what I want, what I desire, and then what I'm doing so many times, God, is sin. And if I was left to my own devices, that's all I ever would see. But you have not left me to my own devices. You have not left us to try to find and fight our way into heaven and scratch and claw and get there by the skin of our teeth after you lay things on the scale and see if we were good enough. It's not the way this works. I come and I say that I am a sinner. My mind and my heart and my life is broken beyond repair in and of myself. But you have a better way. Jesus came so that I can have a right concept of authority. So that I can repent and change the way I think and feel. And so that I can do good deeds empowered by your Holy Spirit. The blessings of expiation where you took my sins away from me. The guilt of my sin away from me. And the gift of imputation that you've given me the very righteousness of Christ as a gift. And so my mindset, my heart is, I am a crouching beggar. And unless you put it in my hands, God, I don't have it. And you and your grace and your mercy, don't just put it in my hands. You put it in my head. You put it in my heart. You put it in my life. And you overflow to the point that the world benefits from the fruit that you're bearing through me. God, I pray that we as your people would have a right concept of authority. That we would be submissive to authority. I pray that you would help us to repent, to change our minds when we need to change our minds. And God, I pray that our lives would be characterized by good works, good deeds, that we would be real and not hypocritical. And we do need your help, and you are willing and able to give us that help, so we praise you. Help us to go forth from this place, to enflesh and to share your gospel with a lost, broken, hurting, dying world. We ask for that help and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. If you want to congregate, please step out into the court.